Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Carl Abrahamson, presenting his lecture, Carl Jung, Mythmaker. Carl Abrahamson is a Swedish author and filmmaker. His latest book, The Devil's Footprint, is a brilliant satire about our current day and age. You can also find his other books, A Culture, from Inner Traditions and Resonances from Scarlet Imprint, as well as his publishing company, Tripart Books, Films, and Editions. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry from Tripart Books 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P A T R E O N.com forward slash. V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Hello and welcome to this lecture called Carl Jung Mythmaker. Thank you for coming. Thanks. On the whole, uh, Carl Jung is already so well documented and well known that it's almost not worth talking about him. Jung is a superstar of a different kind than Freud, despite the fact that they have both been important pioneers within psychology as we know it. And the word pioneer isn't even enough to describe them. They are both rather founders of modern psychology, which has now, in its rebellious teen phase of independence, tossed them both out. Jung packed a stronger punch, but not because he was less esoteric and incomprehensible than Freud. In many ways, he was more so but because he was taken in and integrated in the surrounding culture much faster. Even early on, Jung was part of culture. The Dada movement shared the same environment as the budding psychology movement in Switzerland. 
The writer Hermann Hesse was his patient. He visited the Monteverita commune at Ascona, and he had a creativity of his own that he battled with. Jung also interpreted cultural phenomena in more general ways than Freud, whose focus was usually on the individual and on isolated experiences. Jung focused considerably more on the integration and analysis of myths, religions, customs and symbols. In the development of concepts like the archetypes and the collective unconscious, Jung not only looked at isolated myths in themselves, but also at their artistic expressions. He claimed that there is an impulse-generating layer in the psyche that is shared by all human beings and that can be directly accessed through introspection, dreams, the study of myths and personal artistic work. A certain culture can possess a more rational or civilized construction than another, but the basic psychological foundations are in essence the same globally. Jung's travels around the world and his collection of data confirmed his theories and became an important part of his overall system. The general openness that followed after the Second World War, which was decidedly a necessary pendulum movement, was integrated in both Jung's life and work in an enormous amount of material telling the story of what had so far gone wrong. The individual's need to find him or herself, a healthy individualism in a paranoid and collectivistic world, attractive myths with strong emotional resonances, many possibilities of interpretation, not just one, the integration of one's own artistic process and many other aspects eventually contributed to both a liberalization of Western culture in, for instance, the hippie movement and later in what we today call the New Age movement, and perhaps even to a stronger presence of political liberalism. One can feel and think what one wants about all of these manifestations, but no one can deny the influence that Carl Jung has had on our culture. It's been there hand in hand with an overall need to find new ways that are not dictated from above or even from the outside, but that must be discovered by each and everyone on the inside, in the spiritual and the occulted. When things are broadened, popularized and integrated in a culture, the precursors, the pioneers, the codifiers and formulators are often lost along the way. Generalization becomes the norm, and old terms are used in new contexts, in pragmatically simplified ways. What once originated in advanced psychological reasoning, in an open-minded yet empirical method, becomes vague sloganeering and transparent virtues to make necessities of. A pop-cultural book by Jung like Man and His Symbols is filled with highly relevant material to a deeper understanding of Homo sapiens as a cultural being, but the main attraction lies in its accessibility and the opportunity to quickly get an attractive overview in an increasingly complex, confused and fragmented world. One jumps over the conclusions, and preferably also 
demands of critical thinking to instead find an alluring and irrational solution to personal issues through a very general kind of inspiration. Where Jung claimed that many of our central myths told stories about essential things that each individual must process in a hard and quite often painful process of individuation, the modern interpretation, say from the 1960s and onwards, has become one of facing the path of least resistance and adapting to its attractive shortcuts. Where Jung wanted to make us aware of what is already there, inside us, most people still keep looking for outside sources. Here's a quote by Jung. I have called this wholeness that transcends consciousness the self. The goal of the individuation process is the synthesis of the self. From another point of view, the term entelechy might be preferable to synthesis. There is an empirical reason why entelechy is, in certain conditions, more fitting. The symbols of wholeness frequently occur at the beginning of the individuation process. Indeed, they can often be observed in the first dreams of early infancy. This observation says much for the a priori existence of potential wholeness, and on this account the idea of entelechy instantly recommends itself. But insofar as the individuation process occurs, empirically speaking, as a synthesis, it looks, paradoxically enough, as if something already existent were being put together." End quote. One could definitely say that Jung is the contemporary norm in these spheres. Jung's terminology rules if not within clinical psychology, then definitely within popular culture, with terms like introvert, extrovert, synchronicity, anima, animus, etc. Jung's integration of myths as an expression of fundamental psychological truths got a push forwards through American mythologist Joseph Campbell's successful books and projects, like The Masks of God, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, and The Power of Myth. Here we also find an accessible focus on the analysis of myths, mainly filtered through religion, fiction and popular culture throughout the millennia. Although social contexts constitute much of our lives, Jung and Campbell, as well as many other later Jungians, always stressed that development is an individual affair, that it could be no other way. I quote, Joseph Campbell. It has been one of the really painful problems of the modern Western individual to gain release for his conscience from this Levantine assurance of a separation of spirit and nature, mythic dissociation, together with its correlative totalitarian dogma, social identification of society. Almost any quorum, it seems, will do a people a church, even a trade union, or anything calling itself the state, as the only vehicle of value through association with which an individual can achieve worth. When actually the truth is the other way around, that whatever human worth a social group may claim, 
it will have gained only by the grace of the great and little individuals of its membership. End quote. In the 1960s, even structuralist philosophers like Roland Barthes began writing about contemporary times from a strictly mythological perspective. He showed that phenomena like Greta Garbo, Einstein's brain, and even striptease must be interpreted in a mythological way. Like Jung, Barthes claimed that myth is essentially a language where Jung wrote that this language in itself also constituted an essential content for personal development. For Barthes, the mythological language became more of a convenient tool for his own contemporary criticism. But the very term mythology was brought forth again, and no longer strictly within academic fields like the history of, of religions or anthropology. From a psychological perspective, one could say that the concept of myth was made conscious by Jung and also by his later interpreters. Suddenly it was around in a wider and more public context. And with this, the terms myth and mythology gained more meanings where it used to signify a group of behaviors and stories that had lived on orally or written down and that could be focused on. Today, it's become diluted and can signify anything from a lie to a feeling. No, that's not correct, it's just a myth, or that felt totally mythical. This dilution is of course a part of contemporary Western culture in general. One could almost say that our contemporary mythologies to a large extent consist of upheavals not just of old kinds of tradition, but also of how we experience them, how we value them. Perception certainly hasn't been sharpened, which some technophiles like to argue, but rather dulled. And the material that we experience consists of impoverished and diluted versions of what once transmitted something substantial. An example. Our Western uh, dramaturgy is based on what's usually called a Homeric structure. It ties into Homer's stories about Odysseus' travels towards distinct goals. And during his travels, Odysseus faces problems and challenges that he, either alone or together with others, deals with and solves. This is a very simple setup, and yet seemingly endlessly fascinating. The same story has been told in so many ways and in so many different media that it's mind-boggling when you think about it. The reason for this is very likely the actual weight of tradition. You tell your kids the same story that you were once told yourself. And these stories are more important than most parents seem to understand. But what's happened since the days of Jung are mainly two things. Technology-driven mass media is one thing, and the commerci commercialization of shared public space another. Both these things have contributed to that the amount of fiction has increased in relation to one's own thinking, where previously we chose fiction in a compartmentalized manner and actively took part of it. Today we are overrun by TV, the internet, movies and commercials of all kinds, and games, and this mainly happens passively. 
I have stated before, and I'll do it again, that we now live in and through more fiction than so-called fact-based reality. Fiction has taken over. And if we want to break it down one more level, we can say that our own mythologies need our voluntary submission to too much, too many, and that too quickly. That's when we leave the original function of myth, education, teaching, and explaining things that are conducive to one's own mental health, in unfortunate favor of being driven into a wall of technological rule and perceptional deficiencies at an exponentially increasing speed. How would Jung interpret our contemporary times? I can only, of course, speculate, and I gladly do. I believe he would have called it reversion, where he claimed that the answers lie within ourselves on individual but also culturally integrated levels, and that one needs to work hard to reach these deeper levels. Basically, everything today is reversed or contrary, attractive tsunamis of empty promises in commodified and disposable identities, together with fictions filled with immediate and evanescent saturation, and, to add insult to injury, told in a narrative structure that retardifies the partaker. We see what happens, then at least two participants retell what just happened, as if we can't get it ourselves. It's a breaking down of the barriers of human intelligence and dignity. The result is a kind of anti-Jungian abyss. Stress and existential anxiety increases, but is not treated therapeutically, but pharmaceutically. The human being is allowed to believe in whatever she so desires, but doesn't really believe in anything at all. And those who actually do believe in something seem willing to kill all those who don't share their specific belief. If you simply exchange a cluster of well-tried and well-meaning myths for arbitrarily created and often quite non-altruistic pseudo-myths, then perhaps we simply can't handle it. The contact with the deeper layers of the psyche may actually be literally essential for the individual. And that's what Jung claimed, anyway. No outside structures can act as substantial substitutes for the gnostic and direct contact that the individual needs in his or her development. One parallel example could be the fact that we can't survive uh, if we can't or aren't allowed to dream. One important part of functional myths is relevance. The reason why certain stories still live on is that they've transmitted definitive and engaging knowledge and wisdom. What is relevant today? And how should we preserve that in such a fragmented existence as ours? Very likely we're looking at oral transmission, possibly amplified by physical books. All the so-called digital storage media are highly ephemeral gadgets, and we all know it. They won't last. And what will actually be told? what's going to be relevant for those who come next. Desperate attempts at contact with our own history and a permeating anxiety about the future is what's defining a lot of our contemporary history writing. I recently rewatched the first Planet of the Apes films and they are like a contemporary mythological goldmine, despite the fact that they are already 
40 to 45 years old. At first, some humans led by Charlton Heston land on a planet that reveals itself as Earth in the future. The planet is now run by intelligent talking apes who keep the remaining human population as slaves. This is a simple science fiction and mythological presentation. You travel in time to show a nightmare scenario. But the interesting thing about Planet of the Apes is that the story goes on. The reason for the power switch between apes and humans in the future is that some of the more benevolent apes in Heston's company actually go back in time on Earth, intelligent and talkative, to an existence of being caught and maltreated because they stir up a riot among the lower kinds of apes. However, their genetic offspring develops, takes charge, and eventually enslaves the humans. That is, until Charlton Heston shows up several thousands of years later. It's a very simple yet efficient time warp potential loop scenario in which we are exposed to the problems of xenophobia, anthropocentrism, vanity, and the worship of technology in a fairy tale form. A beautiful and substantial myth. Similar examples exist in Lord of the Rings, which very much contains Tolkien's own filtering of medieval European myths, spiced with plenty of xenophobia. Jung's friend and colleague, the Romanian historian of religions Mircea Eliad, basically shared and amplified his views. Quote, an object or an act becomes real only insofar as it imitates or repeats an archetype. Thus, reality is acquired solely through repetition or participation. Everything which lacks an exemplary model is meaningless, that is, it lacks reality." End quote. The archetype is, as we know, a strictly Jungian term and concept. Archetypes are the forces or symbols that individuals can meet in the inner, in dreams, visions and in daydreams, and that clearly reflect if, symbolically, variants of current existential issues. And this leads to the question, do Eliade and Jung mean that those who haven't yet acknowledged the archetypes lack a sense of reality, or that they themselves are unreal? It's a highly relevant question for us today. If we are actively opposed by a flamboyant superficiality and an angst-ridden identity crisis, then we can at most reflect each other. Thin surfaces that reflect other thin surfaces. And when this is passed on to new generations, the result is an increasingly accentuated weakness. Eliade also claimed that basically all relevant myths retell the original story of creation regardless of which culture that tells it. There is a need to be reborn, and one does that by acting out ritualized creations, or active symbols, as Jung would call them. And this is also interesting from our contemporary perspective. Exactly which story of creation is permeating our culture and our individual interpretations? Although it's tempting to answer none, I think it's more interesting to look at one main current theme, 
active dissociation from the earth. In fiction, the threat has always come from beyond, from beyond the bend, outer space, another country, etc. We create and recreate here, in our own little paradise. But as the threats of real life increase, terrorism, pathogeny, asteroids, etc., and thereby disturb the smooth recreation stories in of paradise. The current expressions, mythic or simply escapist, also reflect that increase. Hence, we are flooded with stories of space dystopias, us going out, them coming in, supernatural creatures disrupting death, like zombies, vampires, general urban malaise, sexual confusion, more and more superheroes, etc. Entertainment not only reflects, but also actively leads the way. Acclimatization to inner voices and spiritual helpers is regarded as a facet of insanity, while Pokemon Go takes on like wildfire. We are permeated by an illusion of empowerment. One example of this could be the first The Hobbit film. It's a distant part of a genuinely interesting work based on mythology that is, Tolkien's books. The first trilogy of film adaptations found a very strong resonance with its zeitgeist, and thereby became an immense success. But in the first Hobbit film, there are scenes that are distinctly as plucked from another medium, that of the computer game. The dramaturgy, aesthetics, and overall experience transcends the story in itself to create a comfort zone in an abstracted tool or as it's called today a platform storytelling without a real story is there any difference between that film scene where legolas is jumping up and down on moving blocks and the one in the computer game the difference is one of illusory, illusory empowerment. You can be the character in question in the game. It's like when children play. I'll be this one and you'll be that one. The difference being that it's still a passive existence inside the computer game without any connection to active imagination, daydreaming, associative fantasy, etc. It's not a therapeutic process, but rather just a dulling one. Hence, it's not a myth, but just mere escapism. So, how can we awaken the power of mythology if we believe, like Jung did, that it's beneficial for health and existence? Well, the mere study of myths is fascinating and rewarding. Jung can be hard to read at times, but there's no escaping that man and his symbols is a great introduction. Joseph Campbell, too. Campbell created pop culture out of subjects previously reserved for academic specialists. In reading Jung, Campbell and even Eliad, we understand the weight and importance of mythology, which opens us up to looking at the world with new and wider eyes and makes us connect even the smallest things with larger meanings. The fairy tale is the child's first contact with an abstracted world beyond the immediate family and thereby a strong contribution to how one deals with one's own life later on.
If instead you press an iPad or a cell phone with a blinking, buzzing game in the hands of a child to silence him or her, how will that turn out? For Jung himself, being an ardent empirical scientist, it was difficult to open up to the inner visions he experienced early on in life. At times he even discarded them as being psychotic incidents. But gradually he trusted his own intuition and began to work on the book that may be his most important, the Red Book or Liber Novus. It was simply a book that he wrote and illustrated for himself and which grew and grew over time. It contains religious writings, visions and symbolic images all stemming from his own depths. We can't really say that Jung was a traditional Christian, but he was most definitely agnostic. Many of his texts are gnostic, in the sense influenced by early Christian writing and claiming that it was perfectly possible to maintain a direct contact with God without proxies like priests or churches. Jung didn't want Liber Novus to be published or even shown during his own lifetime, but when it eventually was, in 2009, it became obvious that the work on the book had been extremely influential for many of his thoughts and theories and that he was actually a very talented visual artist too. It was during the work on this book that Jung developed his ideas on the collective unconscious, which is the sphere that he claimed all specimen of Homo sapiens share, like a general DNA of the soul, and to which you can return to access both information and inspiration in life. Quote, by far the most fruitful attempts, however, to find suitable symbolic expressions for the self were made by the Gnostics. Most of them, Valentinus and Basilides, for instance, were in reality theologians who, unlike the more orthodox ones, allowed themselves to be influenced in large measure by inner experience. They are therefore like the alchemists a veritable mine of information concerning all those natural symbols arising out of the repercussions of the Christian image message. At the same time, their ideas compensate the asymmetry of God, postulated by the doctrine of the privatio boni, exactly like those well-known modern tendencies of the unconscious, to produce symbols of totality for bridging the gap between the conscious and the unconscious, which has widened dangerously to the point of universal disorientation." End quote. Unfortunately, I don't think that Jung will reclaim his well-deserved central status within the field of psychology. Psychology is a phenomenon, just like history writing, that is at times too affected by its own environment and contemporary influence. But I do believe that Jung's thoughts and ideas will take on new forms and carry on within art, literature and other expressions of culture. Because we don't really need more existential manuals or more neurochemistry, but rather intuitive incentives in which we see the totality and our own story clearer to be able to make our own decisions. Causal empirical science just isn't good enough for that, so we need fairy tales, 
poems and dreams as well as old and new myths to be able to act intelligently on both individual and species levels. Thank you. Thank you for looking at this lecture and listening to it. Uh, hope to see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye. listening to Rendering Unconscious, you've just heard a lecture by Carl Abrahamson entitled Carl Jung, Mythmaker. This lecture was originally presented on January 14, 2018 as part of his A Culture Lecture Series, celebrating the publication of his book A Culture, The Unseen Forces That Drive Culture Forward, published by Inner Traditions. For more, please visit this website for links to A Culture, the book, as well as Resonances, published by Scarlet Imprint. You can also check out Carl's films at tripartfilm.com or his Vimeo On Demand page and his publishing company, Tripart Books, Films, and Editions. He's also just started a new newsletter to celebrate his anthology, The Fenris Wolf. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Tripart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
Thank <laughs> you.